1: Oh, welcome to her tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time, and we never want to waste it here. That's why we do what we do. Turning down the noise of the news cycle, getting to the things that really matter, talking to knowledgeable guests, giving you good information to try to discern the times we live in because it's been really loud and there's a lot of stuff going on, especially in the political season. And let's start right there. Let's talk a little bit about communication. The basic building block of politics is not policy. We tend to do things backwards sometimes. It's not polling. We tend to focus on that because we want to understand what's going on. But the basic building block of politics is actually messaging. A couple days ago in Politico, and this got a lot of coverage. I was gone because I've been out west uh, attending a family function in Denver for a couple of days. But the headline in Politico was Biden's quote, worst performing message And the long and the short of it. This was written by Sam Steen and Alex Thompson for Politico. Uh, Stan Greenberg, longtime pollster and consultant for the Democratic Party, going all the way back to the Clinton years, said this, quote, "Uh, it's our worst performing messaging. I've tested it. Now, what messaging was he talking about? Well, he was talking about President Biden and the Democratic Party constantly talking about all the things that they have accomplished. Quote, this is Greenberg, not me, Greenberg saying this. I did Biden's exact words, his exact speech, and that's the test where we lost all our leads, meaning the Democratic Party in Poland. It said to the voters that this election is about my accomplishments as a leader, not about the challenges you're experiencing. It's an article of bad faith. This is Sam Stein and Alex Thompson writing that the party is deeply hampered by its inability or unwillingness to tout its own accomplishments. But what if that conventional wisdom was just wrong, but terribly, harmfully wrong? And that's what Stan Greenberg is saying in the political piece. We'll link to it. Read the whole thing yourself. Make up your own mind. Let's just stay big picture for a second. The basics of politics. Is communication. And the basis of communication is not just saying something, but making sure it's heard and understood the way you're communicating it. Let's take politics out of it for just a second. Most of you at some point in your life have had a boss, a supervisor, a family member, a parent, a spouse, somebody in your life who wanted to tell you what a great job they were doing. Just think for a second how you took that. Did you really want to hear about what a great job they were doing? Part of leadership, I'm going to steal from my dad here. My dad always told me uh, that leadership was getting things done. Good leadership was convincing people to get things done. And great leadership is making people think it was their idea to get it done in the first place. Well, that applies to politics, too. And what it gets to the basics of the communication we're talking about here is you can't talk away what people are experiencing or feeling or thinking, even if it may not be completely attached to reality, if they're feeling it, if they're experiencing it, if they're thinking it, you can't talk them out of it. Now there are confusing economic numbers. We, that's why we have economists on this show constantly to explain this stuff to us. Cause I don't know a lot about economics either. I know what I read. So we have a lot of different economists all across the spectrum, come on the program and talk about economics. And we've always had the same question. People are confused because there's some economic indicators that are very, very good, like low unemployment numbers and production numbers and consumer spending numbers. And then there are economic numbers that are really, really bad, like inflation, like gas prices, like some of the trade stuff that gets a little complicated, things like taxes, things like cost of living adjustments. Things that get really complicated really fast. Those are confusing things, right? They're confusing to me. That's why we have guests on to talk about it. But people are concerned about the economy. And if you're touting how great a job you've been doing when people are concerned about the economy, things like gas prices, things like inflation, things like the cost of things on the store shelf, you can't talk those things away. So like that boss, like that spouse, like that coworker, like anybody you've ever met in your life, who when you ask them how things are going, they just start listing off all their great things that they've done, but they don't really affect you one way or the other. Remember how that feels and go back to how we opened this conversation. Communication is the basics of politics, not parties, not policy, not trends, communication. Can you get people to understand what you are either going to do for them or have done for them? When you're an incumbent in office, You have to run on your record or you have to run on this is why this didn't work and we want to do this instead next time around. Now, that's a lot harder sell. So people try to accentuate the good things they've done. Every politician's ever done that. The problem is if people are hurting at the gas pump and they're hurting at the store shelves and inflation's biting into them and interest rates start going up, which makes things cost more for them. There's not a whole lot of accomplishments of things that happened last year, two years ago, six months ago that may not directly affect them right now here today, that overrides that message. And you need to tool your message accordingly. So, again, take politics out of it. Free advice, President Biden. This goes for Republican lawmakers as well that are running for office. Nobody wants to hear about your accomplishments unless it's an accomplishment that directly affects them. Sure, you pass spending bills. Every Congress and everybody in both parties votes for those things. I get it. But that's not really going to help folks that are worried. They're scared. They're concerned. You got to tool your messaging accordingly. This White House has had one of the worst comm shops I've ever seen. And we just sat through four years of Trump, who was a live wire where his comm shop had run around behind him cleaning up almost everything he said. Some of that's happening now with President Biden. It's baffling. Some of it's because people like Ron Klein spend too much time in their media bubble instead of dealing with how most people feel. Again, I'm going to repeat. I'm going to emphasize, communication is the basics of politics, and if you fail communication, all the policy in the world isn't going to make up for it, because you've already lost the people, and they're not going to be listening anymore. Politicians, office holders, policy wonks, commentators, adjust accordingly. can't communicate. What you're saying will not matter. More tell right after this. My, 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 do things change quickly? Uh, even here on HerdTel, where we try to do things where we actually go a little slower. We let stories bake usually a little bit. We don't just react to things. Even for us, things went quick over in the UK. Uh, it seems like just a few weeks ago, we had our friend Liz Bromofsky on talking about Liz Truss versus Rishi Sunak. Then we had her back on again when uh, Liz Truss won that outright. Well, now Liz Truss has already resigned her premiership. And Ritchie Sunak is the next man up. Uh, the announcement that basically running unopposed, nobody else could get enough. So he will be the new leader of the Conservative Party. And by de facto, he will become the prime minister of the UK during this very turbulent time. So we're going to run back what we talked about, Richie Sunak, during the original leadership debate uh, about six, seven weeks ago now, uh, because it all still applies. His background, who he is, what we think of him, it just kind of shows how these things go. Because remember, during that leadership debate, he had the backing of the MPs when it went to the wider party. That's when Liz Truss pulled ahead and won. So it was no surprise. He still has the backing of those uh, MPs, and those MPs are going to be very important because obviously Liz Truss did not have that backing, and we all see what happened. So here's our rerun. Let us on Richie Sunak right now on her tell. Fabulous uh let's start with rishi sunak he went wire to wire in the mp portion of this race he was the favorite he held the votes all the way through he's a young guy i believe he's what 42 years old uh good looking guy he he comes from um punjabi hindu family which of course is a big subset uh, culturally in the uk that'll be something folks want to talk about educated oxford of course went to Stanford on a Fulbright, uh, Fulbright excuse me, scholarship. So he has some American tendencies. He's wealthy, he's ambitious, he's obviously political, but who is Rishi Sunak?
2: God, I mean, well, you covered him off pretty well there. He has for the last two years been the chancellor of the Exchequer here. So he's been largely in charge of the economy. And To give him his dues, he's had to manage it during a particularly uh, difficult time, you could say, as we've been going through COVID. Um, And he has done that, well, to some extent, some people obviously criticized him for it, but he did well, he supported the economy. He uh, sent people on furlough during those two years. He did things like the eat out to help out scheme, essentially trying to support small businesses through these incredibly tough times. Um, but what we're seeing now is a sort of shift in that dynamic where I feel as we exited the COVID uh, pandemic, some will say it's not quite over yet, but I would say me, my mind at the start of this year, life very much began to get back to normal. We were um, going out, eating out. We were um, going back into work, going back into the office. Life was just kind of opening back up. And I think that he potentially missed an opportunity there to go back to real conservative values perhaps and instead in April when we had our um, financial budget released he chose to increase national insurance taxes um, and he said he would next year be increasing corporation tax. Um, For me I think this was a bad move particularly corporation tax as we're at a time when we want businesses to kind of be flocking to the UK to sort of have our post Brexit, post COVID boom. Um, And that's where I think he's slightly lost a beat on this. Um, But as you say, he is an incredibly intelligent man. He's very well educated in economics. Um, He's got himself into a little bit of a few scandals. I was interested in how you were picking up on his um, American Americanisms there. Um, There was a scandal, and mainly one of his main ones, there have been two, I would say, was that um, he got into a scandal over his wife's non-dom status, which essentially meant that even though he was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, his wife was... Fully legally, I might add, um, avoiding taxes by remaining a non, a, a, not a citizen of the UK. Um, and so he got in quite a lot of hot water about that. He also has a green card, which when this came out, people were very unhappy about this, um, mainly because it felt almost like at any moment he would just leave the UK to become an American citizen and instead kind of turn his back on us. And it was very fraught at the time. Um, but other than that, um, he he is he has been the very clear front runner throughout this entire leadership contest, and I I still do think it'll be quite close between him and Liz.
1: Hey, we clipped off one of your princes. Now we're getting one of your PMs through. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm joking. (laughs) Um, One quick little tidbit about him, also though, is you just mentioned it though. Some of the little whispers you're getting now politically wise is, is he changing too much trying to craft a prime minister image from what he has been as an MP? Because people are starting to deem on that as like, okay, well, you're just you're adjusting just to become prime minister now. Is that going to hurt him going forward?
2: No, because in many ways he will have to adjust because being Chancellor of the Exchequer, although being in one of those main positions within our government is the only way you can sort of practice to be prime minister. Um, and I think that's why a few of the other candidates fell off a little early is because you do need that experience. Being prime minister of this country is a is a different job, though, and he will have to fashion himself in a sort of new light and in a new way, um, as that will just be shifting into a new role. Uh, one of the main concerns, though, of this is whether this um, this will lead to a lot of infighting within the Conservative Party. Um, it got to the point we have a few televised debates here between the leadership candidates as they go. Um, and in fact, the last one ended up being cancelled because um, Rishi and Liz Truss pulled out because it was seen to be far too damaging to the party image. Um, and I think that is a very important point to touch on there that, um, and Liz actually said it in an interview recently that even if Rishi wins, um, she uh, even if she wins, sorry, she would hope to have Rishi within the fold, Conservative Party, and that at the end of this, it'll all be about uniting the party together to continue on with all the financial difficulties and international difficulties that we have going on.
1: Oh, Welcome back to Hurt Tell. Okay, he hadn't been here in a minute. He's been busy with other stuff, but we're thrilled to have him back. He's one of them lawyer-type people, but he's doing God's work as a public defender by choice, doing great work with that. We're thrilled to have him back. Zeke Webster, welcome back, buddy.
0: Hey, Andrew, good to be here.
1: Good to see you, my friend. All world of defending the downtrodden and uplifting justice and keeping the blindfold firmly on Lady Justice statues and all the good stuff y'all do.
0: Uh, You know, we're just doing our best day to day
1: let's talk about that day-to-day because um i i've got a concern about a narrative it's not a new narrative look i'm old enough to remember um the bush speech uh that's bush the senior speech where where they busted the poor guy out in front of the white house supposedly there's a lot of that that was kind of a setup and he gave the crack cocaine speech i can actually remember that one okay uh i remember the crime bill in 94 okay Crime out of control is just something that comes up every election, especially when there's other things like the economy going, things like this. We're having one of those crimes out of control type election narratives. You're on the ground, though. You're on that front edge of the legal system, public defender. I know what the stats say day to day in the courthouses the people that actually administer the justice system, does it feel like an epidemic where you guys are at? Just give me a little bit more perspective outside of the narrative and what folks are seeing online. Uh,
0: no, I mean, it, the I haven't perceived any kind of connection at all between the way in which like the amount of crime that exists in the world is described on Twitter or on the cable news or whatever it may be. And what I experience day to day. I mean, You know, I always feel like I've got a full docket, but that's just the nature of, you know, how many uh, how many positions uh, are are created and how much funding is there and so on and so forth. But uh, the one thing that I uh, that I think is important to keep track of when we're talking about like crime, how much crime is there and this, that or whatever, is that I think that there's there's some sorts of crimes where it's very clear, like. What it is and what it isn't. I mean, the most classic is murder. That if there's, you know, if there's a dead body on the ground, there's a dead body on the ground, and there's, you know, and, and you can have a lot more certainty that you know some kind of a homicide has occurred, somebody got killed, and we can measure that clearly, you know, from year to year, from month to month, from place to place. But there's a lot of other things where how much crime you find depends upon how hard you're looking for it. So, for example, if we're talking about, you know, a drug proce- drug possession or um, some charges related to guns or or some property crimes i mean there's a whole question of like how much is how much are the police looking for where are they looking what is considered uh, a crime what is considered a misdemeanor what is considered a felony and those numbers sometimes say a lot more about what police are doing or what the government currently thinks is important than they say about what is actually happening in people's lives and who actually is being victimized by uh, by this or that or whatever it may be. And as far as, you know, are things out of control? Are things better, worse, whatever? I mean, in my experience on the day to day, you couldn't tell really one thing or the other. It's just, you know, cases come in, cases come out. It always feels like there's more cases coming in, but you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't be able to say anything about the larger the larger picture.
1: Yeah, Zeke Webster joining us for for the naysayers who's maybe going be like, well, it depends on where you work in a city that's somewhat known to have some violent crime from time to time. So people can just kind of put that to the side. You, you all got you get all of it where you work at, but even looking at the statistics just from your own city, the crime rate for violent crime is about an 8.6 per thousand residents. The property crime is 38.9 per thousand residents. This is pretty consistent. The murder rate nationwide is going up, especially in urban areas. That's undebatable. But that's also still comparatively, not that those aren't terrible things, not that that doesn't need to be dealt with and handled. There's all this other crime, too. Is this a social media thing? Is it a if it bleeds, it leads media, news media thing? They've always fascinated. Is it the, you know, the true crime genre that has exploded why is it that we focus on that murder stuff but the vast majority of the criminal code system is tied up in things like property crime misdemeanors other felonies that's the bulk of what is actually technically crime that's going on right
0: yeah and and i think that a lot of the people that a lot of the ways in which we get our perception of like what is going on out there how much crime there is is being driven by people that have some kind of an incentive to uh to portray the world as more dangerous than it is Uh, now. I mean, I think it's fair to say that like based on international comparisons, the United States has a higher level of violent crime and certainly a higher level of gun crime than uh, a lot of other places. We definitely have a higher level of crime and violent crime than we want, but uh, taking the big picture, um, crime of all varieties was much, the rates of all types of crime were much higher in the 80s and early 90s than they are today Uh, we had the good fortune to live through a very long sustained nationwide decrease in the rates of pretty much everything and now we are experiencing a increase Um, we still haven't gotten anywhere near where we were in the late 80s the late 80s and early 90s Uh, that doesn't mean that it doesn't matter that doesn't mean that it's okay for you know any of these sorts of things to happen but it doesn't mean that things are necessarily spinning out of control in the way that you might feel like they're spinning out of control if you're entirely basing it off of true true crime podcasts and cable news.
1: Yeah, Zeke Webster. Here's my problem. I think we have a narrative problem. I think a lot of our political problems start with nomenclature and rhetoric. I talk about this pretty much every show we do. Part of the nomenclature and rhetoric with crime is so many people i have done it, too. We've all done it. You've probably done it. You, you get that one case that just eats you up like, I just put this guy under the jail, right? The thing about crime is though, we have all the data in the world just throwing people in jail doesn't actually do anything to the crime rate or to deter crime. In fact, the opposite is true is we usually end up making more criminals than we solve. So how do we start changing the narrative and the nomenclature and the rhetoric of, well, when the crime rate goes in, we just need to crack heads and throw more people in prison because that's not actually working. And in fact, we see now with things like, you know, we've got all the data from the 94 crime bill came up during the last election is going to come up that we can look back on now like, no, that it may have solved a few problems. It may look good on TV. It actually created a whole lot of problems as well.
0: I mean, the the one idea that I wish would get farther out there is that I don't think that I don't think that being a criminal is a thing that somebody is. It is a thing that somebody does. It is an act, right? And I think that there's a, a common notion out there that you know there's a set of people that are criminals that are dangerous that 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 don't uh that don't obey the law don't respect the rights of other people, and that the solution to the problem having criminals out there is we got to find them and we got to get rid of them, either either through the death penalty or or put them in prison or whatever it may be, and I I just think that that is a fundamentally flawed premise. Um, I think that the vast majority of people that commit crimes, even sometimes very serious crimes that cause very real harm to other people are, you know, are responding to some combination of the situation they find themselves in the ordinary, you know, human weakness that we all have addiction, mental illness, this, and that, and what have you. And I think that we have kind of fixated on jails and prisons as a solution. Um, Without any without much in the way of evidence that they actually accomplish what they're supposed to accomplish. And, uh, you know, this isn't always the case, but a, a very, very many people that, that do commit crimes that, uh, are, are people who have something going in the, going on in their life that could be addressed or potentially could maybe even be fixed. And I think in my experience, it's very common when you see somebody that's a recidivist that that keeps getting arrested over and over again, that keeps getting imprisoned over and over again. It's very, very common for that person to be somebody with some kind of a mental illness or an addiction component and why they're doing what they're doing. And very many times, you know, you can you can get uh, if you approach the, the situation from the point of like, well, what help does this person need? then instead of just saying, oh, well, let's lock this person up for another year or another two years, and then they get out, and then here we are, and nothing has changed, you actually try to change something. And then both the people that might possibly have been victimized by future crimes are better off, and the person who's been spending all this time in jail is better off. And so are their families, and any kids that they might have in the community that they're from. I just think that that needs to be a much bigger part of how we think about responding to when people do bad things.
1: Yeah. Zeke Webster joining us. Of course, that's a hard sell because it's easier to just say, you know, punish, punish, punish. The problem is we're doing all the punishment. There is very little rehabilitation that goes. You've seen all the stats. Part of the problem. And, and as I've tried, I've evolved a little bit on on the criminal justice system. Part of the problem we've got going on now is and you're there, you're on. I hate to say entry level, but lack of a better term for the common person is not a lawyer, you know, entry level misdemeanors, crimes that involve fines, crimes that involve you got to go to a court appearance, but it may get drug out, this kind of stuff. What's happening too often, though, is this becomes some kind of a snare trap where people start getting caught up in the system and they got to start paying fines and then they got to start dealing with the court systems. And too often that actually leaves people worse off than before, and it gets them sucked farther into the system instead of dealing with them and putting them back out into society in a more functional way. Is it an overreach to say, I think too much of our criminal justice system problem is our criminal justice system is making more criminals than it's solving crime?
0: No. And I mean, to be even more cynical about it, I'd say that the the dirty little secret of a lot of misdemeanor and traffic courts is that often those courts make money for the government. That you, you know, you have situations out there uh, where they're, you know, where, where police are directing like traffic enforcement and things like that not with the intent of keeping people safe, but with the intent of uh, bringing in revenue so that you don't have to raise local property taxes or things like that. And, you know, it's part of it is that it's a, it's a very like chaotic decentralized system with a lot of different people playing in. And, you know, you're in the situation of trying to turn around the proverbial oil tanker, you know, one degree at a time, but um, but yeah, I, I think that the kind of retail level day-to-day crime and punishment story is very often one where you make it harder for people to hold down a job, you make it harder for people to stay in an apartment or, or um, you know, keep uh, keep custody of their kids or whatever it may be. You don't actually make it any easier for uh, the the situations that sometimes give rise to criminal behavior to no longer exist.
1: Yeah, and part of this too, Zeke Webster joining us, I think we need to separate violent crime from other crime. Because obviously somebody that's a violent criminal, that's, that's a different beast. But then when you have all these other crimes, too often we just conflate them as crime and we need to punish crime. A lot of this stuff is just behavioral type stuff. They either had a bad day, they made a bad decision, kind of like you were talking before. They had some kind of outside circumstances that put them in a bad situation. Doesn't mean they're not culpable. Doesn't mean they don't need to make restitution either financially or with some kind of a jail term. But I think we conflate those two things way too much because what happens is if you keep one of those nonviolent people in the system long enough, you're going to make them violent. And we've got the data to show that. I I think this is something that needs to be talked about more. I know there's the trope about, oh, they go to prison and they become a criminal. There's the line from Shawshank that's famous. I had to go to prison, learn how to be a crook. There's actually a lot of truth to that. And we're paying for it as a society. We're paying for it as a government. It's expensive to make a career criminal in the criminal justice system, but that's what we're doing too much of.
0: Yeah. and I mean, the, the one other thing I would, I would jut in with is that, um, you know, we have, I think that it's worth making a distinction between, you know, violent crimes and like lesser property crimes, things like that. But I think we there's a whole other category of crimes that it's where you, it's not even necessarily something that would always be considered a crime at all. I mean, I would say that I, I have a tremendous number of cases that I work right now. And all those cases consist of is the police pull somebody over for some kind of minor traffic violation. And then they try to come up with some sort of an excuse to uh, pull them out of the car and search through their car to see if they can find drugs or a gun over and over and over again, on and on and on. And you get these people that are, you know, charged with a felony because maybe they had a gram of cocaine in their car, or maybe they had a pistol and it was in the glove box instead of visible to the cop or whatever it may be. And uh, I don't, you know, it's it's not at all clear to me what connection that kind of policing has with keeping anyone anywhere safer. Uh, I, I think it, it it is an expression of other political values and other political um, objectives that people have, and it falls very heavily on particular communities, especially communities of color. Um, but I think that, you know, there, there's, there's definitely a distinction to be drawn between when we're talking about crimes that really do involve like harm that one human being has done to another human being versus a lot of other things where that connection to someone else being hurt and being injured is much, much, much less clear.
1: Yeah, Zeke Webster. All right, since the president put it on the four, he pardoned uh, the federal marijuana simple possession folks. That's a very small number. It was like six in the 6,000 something. That number's in the 500,000s when you go to state and municipalities. If you took the low-level drug offenses out of the system, again, the lower level where you're at the bleeding edge, the where folks get their first charges, for lack of a better term, if that part of the criminal justice system was just kind of stopped or taken away or lessened, how much different would our criminal justice system look right now?
0: I mean, I'd throw out half my filing cabinet. Like it's, uh, I mean, somewhere in there, yeah. I mean, part of that is the nature of the cases that I mostly work. But I mean, yeah, like there, a whole lot of the cases rolling through are just simple possession of marijuana, simple simple possession of cocaine, um, things that maybe get charged as possession with intent to, stri- to distribute. Where what that means is it's a you know a couple grams and a scale and a couple baggies or something like that. I mean yeah, I th- think it's it's an enormous amount of what the courts spend their time doing. It's no more an, an enormous amount of what the police spend their times doing their time doing. and in my view, it's just not really doing anything at all to make anybody safer safer, happier, healthier or anything like that.
1: yeah, Zeke Webster. The other thing that gets brought up a lot currently is bail. And the cash bail system, there's uh, some progressive cities are trying to do different things with it. Obviously, it's political fraud because, look, you don't know what people's going to do. You're going to and politicians are scared of it because you're going to let that one guy go. And that one guy's going to go do something terrible. And then it's hung around everybody's neck. Is there some practical bail stuff that we could do? Because obviously the money system. You've got, you know, disproportionately folks that are on the lower income scales that probably don't have the money to do cash bail in a lot of cases, which makes them wards of the system when they probably don't need to be. Otherwise, you know, I don't want to do utopian dreamscape where we just let everybody go because that's not going to work either. Is there a practical middle ground here somewhere of just something that might just work better day to day in the court system?
0: Yes. Like there, there have been a number of jurisdictions that have either uh, abolished or reformed their money bail systems and found that they release a lot more people pre-trial and it does not have a measurable impact on public safety. Um, I mean, the, the, the idea that the only way you can ensure that somebody is going to come back to court or that somebody is not going to commit new offenses while they're waiting for their court date is for them to pay money. Uh, a set amount of money, it, it, it doesn't, I mean, it, it, I don't feel like it's an idea that's even really trying that hard to make sense. Um, and like for, in my, in my jurisdiction, you know, we have, uh, we, most people that are, uh, uh, that are charged with crimes in my jurisdiction do have some kind of a money bail that they're required to post, and most people that are in the jail are in the jail because they haven't been able to post some amount of bond. But we also, in theory, have like a pretrial release program where people are required to um, maintain contact with the pretrial program and uh, make sure that they they have a phone, they like check in and or call uh, or like call people weekly and things like that to make sure that they're aware of when their court dates are and that they're remaining in contact and if they don't participate in the pre-trial pro or and if they like stop making those calls then maybe their bond gets revoked and they put out an order for arrest or in other cases you'll see people put under um they'll like be given electronic monitoring or electronic house arrest or different you know different combinations and in in my view, I, mean, I think that for, for cases where you do have some greater level of concern that somebody might not return to court, I think all of those things make a lot more sense than requiring people to pay money. And in my experience, the, the main result of having cash bonds is that you have cases where somebody can't afford to post a few thousand dollars, uh, you know, to hire a bondsman to post a few thousand dollars or something like that. And then they get told on their court date that that if you take a plea for probation, you'll get out today. And if you want to fight the charge, then you're going to stay in for however many months waiting for a jury trial. And they take the plea for probation and they get out today. And honestly, I think that the I think that very many people involved in the system are aware of the way in which money bond um, pressures poor people to accept guilty pleas, regardless of whether or not the plea is fair and regardless of whether or not they're actually guilty of what they're charged. At. And I think that for some for some of the players in the system, that's the point. That's not a regrettable side effect. So I mean, I, I think that there are other jurisdictions that have tried it. I think that uh, the data before they rolled it, rolled it back was that New York's experiment with uh, bail reform was effective. Um, I think it works. It's just that there's a lot of people that don't want it to work because there are a lot of people that want people to be held in jail pre-trial and want people to have that incentive to go ahead and plead.
1: Yeah, Zeke Webster joining us. So the pushback is going to be because you're going to get that guy that's on his fourth, fifth, sixth charge. He leaves and he kills somebody on his way Mm home. Now, I understand statistically that's the outlier, but I also work in media. So I know how that works. That's exactly what happened in New York. As soon as they did bail reform, Every single person that committed a crime, as soon as they were at that, it hit the wires. What do you do to get around? Because let's be fair. That's a bad optic. It looks bad. It feels bad. People just recoil from it. Like how in the world does that happen? Part of that's probably an accountability problem. Part of it's probably, you know, general sloppiness in the administration of the policy. Part of it's probably the policy itself. How do we push back on that? If you're going to push for some kind of a meaningful bail reform, because it's going just statistically, it's going to happen.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just an, you know, politics is always a long slog and, you know, there's no final victories and there's no easy modes or anything like that. So it's a matter of persuasion over time. And, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't dispute that in any kind of system of pretrial release that you have, there's going to be somebody somewhere who is released either because he was released on some kind of non-monetary bond system or because he posted bond and then he got out And then he went and committed some other much more serious crime or whatever it may be. Those cases are always going to exist in at least some numbers somewhere. But you have to point out that that's that's always balanced out by cases like, um, you know, by cases of people who sit in jail waiting trials for months and months and months and are then found not guilty. Or people that are sitting in jail waiting trial and then have something awful happen to them in jail because jails are dangerous and unsafe places to be. I mean, it's, you know, I, I, I think the argument can't ever be, oh, well, this, this is never, like, we're never going to have any bad effects, whatever, of this policy. It's just that we have to be talking about both the good and the bad. And for every one person that is released who it turns out, in retrospect, they shouldn't have been released, there's going to be many other people who got out and went home and went back to their families, went back to their jobs and their lives, and then didn't do anything at all like that. And we just have to be talking about this and you know be be honest about the pros and the cons and what all this is worth.
1: I know there's a legal term to it, but it sounds exploitive to me. And it sounds like we're going to have a hard time pitching that we're getting justice done if you have an exploitive system like that. Am I wrong?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's sometimes when I'm arguing bond hearings, I just try and boil it down like this. As that I'll say that, you know, if somebody's in jail and he's got a $10,000 secured bond, then what I would say is that, well, what that means is that the opinion of the state of North Carolina is that if this man had $10,000, it would be just fine to let him walk free. But because he doesn't have $10,000, he needs to sit in a cage to wait for his day in court. And in a country that where we at least say to ourselves that, you know, we're all created equal, we all have equal rights and that your access to, uh, to the justice system shouldn't be determined by how rich or poor you are. I just think that the logic of that can't stand, right? I mean, that that somebody who has the money can get out and somebody who doesn't have the money cannot, there's a fundamental unfairness to it. Uh, it means that, that the, the rights to a trial, the rights to due process are mean very different things for the rich and the poor. Um, And I just don't think that we should ever be able to uh, accept a system like that.
1: Yeah, Zeke Webster joining us. My problem with it is, and this is more philosophical than legal, so, you know, this is going to be a little, you know, pie in the sky, but it needs yeah. to be discussed is my problem with it is it's not just, there's no such thing as the system. I understand there's a system, yeah. but the system's like the media. It's like, you know, whatever. That's a group of people. I think we'd say the system and let people off the hook instead of having accountability about it. And then the other part about the accountability of it is, though, is Nobody wants to do anything other than blame the system, and you never get the individual people doing what they could be doing. This is not people versus the system. This is the government and entrenched people in the government versus people that are not in the government. And that's an unfair fight no matter what you do, unless you have a whole bunch of money and you can fight it. And then they usually leave you alone because now they're the ones without the resources, as we've seen with like the IRS cases. That's the imbalance that, above all the rhetoric, above all the other things, that's what really bothers me is. We don't see law enforcement and criminal justice. That's the enforcement wing of government and government versus the average person, especially somebody that's poor or in a disparate group or whatever the case may be. That's never going to be a fair fight if they don't have the law on their side and they don't have some consideration under the law. People don't have a chance.
0: Absolutely right. Absolutely right. I, I don't really have a lot to add other than I agree. I'll just nod my head over here. I just, it's
1: one of those things I find frustrating at the more I study it and the more, you know, I'll be honest, I didn't think about it a lot until somebody I was really close to me and fair to me, you know, had to do a prison sentence that was unjust and I saw all the hoops they had to jump in through and I saw all, you know, the crap they had to deal with and it's like this stuff ain't fair and not everybody has that experience, but they should read about somebody that's had that experience and at least have some empathy. I'll, I'll end this with that. How do we have a better conversation about this? Because the, the hardliners are always going to point to the worst case murderers and criminals and say, yes, these people are, you know, subhuman animals, which that's still too far. But you understand what they're saying. How do we change the conversation then to know most of the people in the legal system are folks that have made mistakes, have got caught up in it, but we still need to have some fairness in here in adjudicating what price they do owe society as a whole?
0: I mean, I just think it's always important to, to talk about the specific stories of the people that encounter the system in that way, that when you're, when, you know, when, when we're talking about these numbers and about like low level crimes versus high level versus property crimes, fundamentally it's, you know, it's people, people that wind up getting put, uh, in, uh, in, in jails and prisons every day people that get taken away from their families, from their neighborhoods, from their communities, from their brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children and so forth. And I think that there are a lot of structural reasons that we tend not to see that story as much as we tend to see the story of, you know, serial killers and high profile crimes and so on and so forth. But that's the much more typical story of what the criminal legal system is doing on a daily basis. And I just think that it needs to be more of an emphasis because it is the It's the bigger part of what the government is actually doing in people's lives on the day to day. And when you're looking at it just as people trying to live their lives and then they have an encounter with the police and they wind up in a cage, it strikes very differently. Yeah.
1: When it happens to you all of a sudden, what's the old joke is like, you know, the victims always want the conservative judge. And when you're the defendant, you want the liberal judge, that kind of the old trope. Um, when it's you in the doc or when it's somebody you love, it's, it's going to treat you differently. So maybe just assume that to start with, and then try to build the system that way. Zeke Webster, you do outstanding work, my friend. I appreciate your insight, especially since, you know, you, you do this on the working end, as they call it on the day to day. So I always appreciate your insight. Let folks know where they can follow you. We'll try to get you on more often going forward. Although you're a very busy man getting ready to get a lot busier. Uh, let folks know how they can follow you until they see you on her again.
0: Uh, probably just hit me up at uh, Don Zico on Twitter. Um, and uh, from time to time, I write things in other places, but I usually put that up on Twitter so you can just start there.
1: Yeah, he's a great writer. We need to lean on him to get back to writing once in a while, at least occasionally, because you do good work, sir. I appreciate your time. Zeke Webster, thank you, sir. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right, let's end on a good note. Uh, we always try to do something a little uplifting. Let's update a story that we did previously. I didn't mean to update it. It just kind of quite literally sat down right next to me. Remember that story with our friend Krista Kafer um, a few weeks ago where we talked about the Rocky Horror Picture Show and the ordinance about slipped nipples and all that mess out in Douglas County, Colorado? Well, does it happened to be? And one of the reasons we've been doing a lot of Best Of shows, I was in Colorado most last week for a family wedding, and the person that sat down beside me at our table during the swanky and very good wedding dinner happened to be one of the directors of the place where the theater that this all occurred. So I actually got the whole backstory on it. Long story short, uh, this is a art center that has a theater in it. And because it's an arts and cultural center, that's where they were having the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And of course, people show up dressed up and so on and so forth as we covered. Now, Here's the rest of the story. Uh, what basically happened was a local councilman decided to make an issue of this. It's an old law in the books from 100 years ago that everybody had pretty much forgotten about. But the center actually gave them a little bit of trouble. So they had to do things like hire police for security and things like this. Just doing due diligence, not thinking it would be anything. The fun part of the story, though, all the hype. They had to add two more showings and sold them both out, along with all the other tickets controversy sells as it turns out people do love their rocky horror pictures show and it was the same place where the wedding that i was attending happened the theater and the outdoor venues right across the hall from each other and then the banquet hall facilities right catty corners of that funny how it really is a small world after all we covered that story a few weeks ago i had no idea i would physically be in the place that story was and get to meet the people responsible get to chat with them lovely lady by the way wonderful facility really enjoyed my time out in colorado didn't get a rocky mountain high but uh, maybe a good decent contact bus that'll do it for her tell uh we love to hear from you i know we've been doing some best of shows for a couple reasons one is like i said we travel to colorado two is i'm doing a whole lot of doctoring this week uh so there'll be some shows that are just interviews things like that if i'm not doing live reads that's what's going on. Uh, we'll update you on the health stuff. As we know, a lot of tests, a lot of repeat imaging, things like that right now. So, nothing to report. We will let you know. And I appreciate all of you that have been asking and keeping up to date on that. We'll let you know when there's news, I promise. Uh, when I know, y'all will know. So, in the meantime, keep up with us at Herd Tell Show on the Twitter, Herd Show at gmail.com. You want to Write us, communicate with us. You got something you want us to cover. Story you think didn't get covered correctly. We've done whole segments and whole shows based off of it. Got a guest you think we should hit up or the guest you think we should have back. We'd love to hear from you too. Uh, we always appreciate you, even with doing some rerun shows and things like that. Our numbers have been good. It's all because of you. And we thank you so very, very much for joining us as we do our best to turn down the noise of the news cycle, give you good information to discern the times we live in. So wherever you and yours are, across the street or around the world. We hope you're well. We hope you are well-fed. And we will talk to you again real soon for more Hurt Tell. All the music on Hurt Tell is provided under a creative content license from Monstercat.com.